Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on graphic novel and comics publishing. Once again recorded at the PW offices in New York City, I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, Editor of PW Comics World, and Editor of The Fanatic, PW's twice a month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. And I'm Heidi McDonald. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Beat at ComicsBeat.com. And you can find us on Twitter at, at PWComicsWorld. And I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online on Tumblr at PWComicsWorld.tumblr.com. All right. And don't forget, you can still subscribe to more to come on the Apple Podcast app, on Google Podcasts, and on Stitcher. And on Facebook, we're at Facebook.com slash PWComicsWorld. And also don't forget that you can leave us a comment or a rating on any of the podcast platforms of your preference. So please do, because we love to hear from our listeners. Now, listeners, if you may have noticed, this is pretty much the longest time we've ever been between news episodes. Sorry about that. We had some personal life scheduling issues, but we're back with a double-sized super special. Yes, super special. More to have. All righty. All right, this week on More to Come. The 2022 Eisner nominations and new Hall of Fame uh, inductees coming right to you. Um, in memoriam, uh, you know, the, the last month has been, been terrible, uh, really heart wrenching. So we'll talk some more about, um, uh, four people that we really uh, want to, uh, pay tribute to comings and goings in the business. Um, and you know what? The business is booming. Uh, we also will have, uh, library challenges continue. We're going to talk about the media and talk a little bit about PW at 150. Publishers Weekly is 150 years old this year. And we're going to talk about how comics fit into that timeline, so to speak. So we have a lot, a lot to, to talk, talk about. about. Mm. Um, and only an hour to do it. So we're going to try to press through as much of this news as we can to get you all caught up with everything. Um, starting with the Eisner nominations, which just came out yesterday. And, um, these are pretty mainstream. You know, some years it's like, uh, just very small indie. This year, the number one book was Nightwing. So, yeah. Make of that and one. DC got quite a few nominations. DC. They're, they're kind of back on top again in a way. What, 15 nominations? I mean, some of them are shared, of course, but. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, what, Image had 14 nominations? So, um, you know, but, you know, DC's doing its thing. Well, they had a ju- judging panel that really liked DC. That's yeah. really what it comes down <laughs> to, because it's all about the taste of the, of this, this sure. year's judges. Yeah, but it's also about which publishers had a good year. Yeah. Well, hey, listen, uh, you know, always kvetching. Uh, my main kvetch is no nominations for uh our Kikuo Johnson's No One Else yes. or Leli's Stone Fruit, the two most uh acclaimed books of last year. So to me that's a miss, but you know. Yeah. Well, I mean if I started going on about the books uh that I thought should have been nominated, mm-hmm. I I and one of them is, is absolutely um with no one else, without a doubt. Um but I think there's a lot of nonfiction that they should have had on here too. But yeah, they're, well they're, they're, they you know they're, in not, I'd say the most controversial by far. I love that it's the best reality-based work category, which is irony upon irony, is The Strange Death of Alex Raymond by Dave Sim and Carlson Grubaugh, which, <laughs> to be fair, is a very uh, incredible work by Dave Sim, one of the most controversial figures in comic, recent comics history. 
Um, you know, I would never, Dave Sims, the author of Cerebus, a 300 issue self-published, sure. uh, comic that he drew all these pages of, and it's incredible. He's an incredible cartoonist. He's also, whew, what's the politically correct word to use? A crackpot? Problematic. <laughs> problematic. Extremely problematic. To say the uh, least. Uh, you know, accused of misconduct, uh, you know, his writings are, are been accused of misogyny, open misogyny and homophobia. And the fact that the strange death of Alex Raymond is in best reality based work is boggles my mind because he really goes off on kind of this theory about Alex Raymond and how he, you know, he died in a car crash, but Sim kind of invents all this weird stuff that happens around the car crash. So I'm done. And, and it's just, I mean, and his, tendency to kind of just create um i mean there's so much speculative i mean first of all i think the thing is kind of brilliant but i wouldn't call it non-fiction it's not non-fiction uh, you know i mean it's, reality based it's, i mean yeah. it's it's it's, well, it's based in that it is uh tangential it goes off tangentially it's from about reality. a person who lived yeah you know <laughs> or, or many people i mean a lot of his discussions in ter- terms of style i mean some ways it's a brilliant kind of critical journal of of the development of style across yeah. these iconic cartoons. No, there's a lot of great stuff in it. Anyway, but you know, we're, but we're concentrating just, on the negative here. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah. Calvin. What were you? No, no, no. It, it's just that it, that's, it seems odd in yeah. a, Well, I mean, I think for all Heidi says one of the more controversial people in recent comics, his controversies generally aren't all that recent, which is, I think, how he slipped through again, because I think there's a whole generation or two of comics people Who've never even seen Cerebus and have yeah. only vaguely heard urban legends of like the weird Aardvark comic and may not even know who wrote it. So, you know, there's that. I, to be honest, I was stunned. You know, when as soon as I saw that, I thought, oh boy, this is lit. And, uh, you know, nobody cared. Well, uh, I mean, until nobody... someone starts posting, uh, Cerebus panels to Twitter. Well, <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, yeah. But uh, for now, um, for now, no, no, it did not ignite. Crickets. It did not catch fire. Did not uh, failure to launch. Now, if he wins, then there will be Cerebus panels on Twitter. Well, all let's day read long. some of the key um, categories here. Absolutely. I mean, we, 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 you know, we're so short on time, but let's just go to the the other in the same category: the Black Panther Party, a graphic history by David Walker and Marcus yes. Kwame Anderson, Hakim's Odyssey, Book One from Sylvia, Syria to Turkey by Fabian. To make, um, promised by Graphic Monday, they had a lot of good, uh, representation. Lugosi, The Rise and Fall of Hollywood's Dracula by Corin Shadme. Mm-hmm. Orwell by Pierre Christian and Sebastian Vernier. Uh, CQ, yep. A Journey Through American yep. Loneliness by Kristen Radke. Mm-hmm. And The Strange Death of Alex Raymond. Yes, um, yeah. Calvin, do you want to read Best Graphic uh, Memoir? Uh, sure, yeah. Uh, Factory Summons by Guy DeLille, which I actually haven't read and uh, so many people have told me. Uh, what's this, uh, parenthesis by, uh, Elodie Doran, um, published by Top Shelf, uh, Run, Book One by John Lewis, Andrew Iden, and, uh, El Fury, and Nate Powell from Abr- Abrams Comics are the, the newest episode in the, the memoir of, of John Lewis. Uh, Save It for Later, Promises, Parenthood, and the Urgency of Protest by, once again, Nate Powell. Up against himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and of course, uh, the wonderful memoir of, by Alison Bechtel, The Secret to Sweeping Human Straight from Mariner Books. Yeah. Uh, so here's uh, the best graphic album. New, which yeah. is kind of the best picture 
category, I always think. Uh, I, I agree. Ballad yeah. for Sophie by Philippe Melo and Juan Cavia uh, from Top Shelf. Destroy All Monsters by Ed mm-hmm. Rubick and Sean Phillips from Image. In by Will McPhail from Mariner. I have never heard of that book, i got to be honest. I, I know the book. Uh, Meadowlark, a coming-of-age crime story by Ethan Hawke. Yes, that Ethan yes. Hawke and Greg mm-hmm. Ruth. And Monsters by Barry Windsor yes. Smith, which is a pretty incredible book. Yes, I don't know. You know what? I'm happy Ethan Hawke is nominated for Eisner. I'd much rather have seen uh, Arakikua Johnson and Leelai in this category. I'm sorry. Yeah, I hear I'm you. sorry. Those, um, I you know. hear you. Yeah. And then Best Graphic Album Reprint. You want to do that one, Calvin? Uh, sure. Uh, well, I moved on. Okay. Uh, the Complete American Gods by Neil Gaiman, uh, P. Craig Russell, and Scott Hampton, published by Dark Horse. Lock and Key, Keyhouse Compendium by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. Uh, Middle West, The Complete Tale by Scotty Young and, and uh, Jorge Corona from Image. Rick and Morty versus <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons Deluxe Edition. Uh, I sound like I'm on the stage at the uh, no, Eisner's. No, right. By Patrick <laughs> Rothfuss, Rothfuss, Jim Zub, and Troy Little from Oni Press. And the True Lives of the Fabulous Killjoys, uh, California Deluxe Edition by Gerard Way, Sean Simon, and Becky Cloonan from Dark Horse. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not that impressed by these. I'm not impressed uh, by these I'm picks. I'm not impressed by them necessarily myself. Um, but there you go. Um, well, well yeah. you know what? That's how it goes. Well, you know? I mean, I can uh, tell you why Rick and Morty versus Dungeons and Dragons got on there. Oh, it's what? Patrick Rothfuss. Who was that? So he's a major fantasy author. Um, he his books are currently being adapted into a major television series. He's got not only a mainstream following but also a diehard cult following. Uh, he he's he brought his fan people with him. Oh, uh-huh. so it's not really because it's Rick and Morty. It's because it's Patrick Rothfuss. Okay, well, fair enough. You know, uh, I again, I'm not. You know, listen, it's a being a judge. You know, Calvin and I have both been judges in the long distant past. And when I was a judge, there was only five publishers, and now there's fifty five uh, yeah, publishers. Now, so, yeah, it's an exponentially you know, more yeah. books to and to go we're over. We're always going to complain, and uh, you know, this year, uh, but some really great bo- work was also nominated. Um, you know, I'm a big uh, Federico Bertolucci fan. I'm glad he was nominated for Brindle Love the Mastiff from Magnetic, uh, one of my favorite artists. So, you know, Sana Takeda for Monstrous Best Artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, it's a huge list. We're slow on time. Let's... But, could I just say one yes. thing? Certain mm-hmm. books, I, I just, I'm amazed. You, you mentioned um, Stone Fruit. I, I think Wake by Rebecca Hall um, a history of, of women-led slave revolts. Uh, uh, yeah. That uh, book. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, there's no way you can justify uh, Dave Sim uh, when this book lives in the world. I mean, it's a really upsetting, frankly, that this book was not. All right, there's the tweet. Nominated. Right, let's see if we can start this fire again. With we got to phrase the tweet better by by I'm, pointing I'm, out a woman who was, I'm astonished uh, that a, a this color book who was, has, was yeah. not nominated well, for should, anything. Should have been. Yeah, that's. It's ridiculous. Uh, there was, yeah. I, I honestly, there's some really good books on here, but there is a lot of good books that are not on this list, and we just named three of them that have gotten a lot of acclaim. Yes. Thank you, Kelvin, for for just pointing that I'd out. Yeah. That. Uh, Kate, did you look? At, well, just one more. Did you look at the manga list? Have you seen the manga listings? Any thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> the manga listings, otherwise known as. Best U.S. edition of international material, Asia, from published by Viz. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is 
Uh, seven C's <laughs> snuck up on there. Um, it, yeah, there's the only one that I would say, the only ones that I would say are a, uh, surprise are, uh, Robo Sapiens, which is richly deserved. It should be there. And that's probably how it got there. Well, I mean, it's, I'll read it off. Chainsaw Man, Kaiju number eight, Love Sickness, Junji Ito collection. Of course, Junji Ito. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, winning all kinds of awards. Robo Sapiens, Spy by Family, however you say that, uh, the other most popular new book, and Zom 100, Bucket List of the Dead. So. And Nova Skipper. Oh, and yeah, and Nova Skipper. So, um, yeah. you know, these are, uh, safe choices. There you yeah, go. they are safe choices. They're fine. They're fine. They're fine. There's nothing to object to, um, but there's nothing that like you're like, yeah, this one definitely got to win. Yeah. Well, like we said, it really just depends on the yeah. um, just who's on the judging committee, and you know what? Uh, some good books yeah. didn't make it. Some good books did. Um, uh, before we move on for the awards, uh, the Hall of Fame. Yeah, inductees have been chosen: uh, Max Gaines, EC publisher; uh, the late Mark Grunwald from Marvel; uh, British illustrator Marie Duval, uh, who was mm. the co-creator in 1867 of uh, Ali Sloper, which is considered the first recurring cartoon character. So she's a real pioneer. Really great uh-huh. to see her recognized. Oh, uh, Rose O'Neill, one of the all-time great cartoonists, a shock that she's just now getting in. Um, the great Filipino artist, Alex Nino, and uh, P. Craig Russell, Russell also yeah. great. Um, and then nominated, uh, these will be voted on, on this year's list, 17, Howard Chaikin, Jerry Conway, Kevin Eastman, <laughs> Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Steve Englehart, Moto Hagio, Larry Hama, Jeffrey Catherine Jones, David Mazzucchelli, Jean-Claude Mezier, Grant Morrison, Gaspar Saladino, Jim Shooter, Gary Trudeau, Ron Turner, George Tuska, Mark Wade, and Kat Ironwood. Uh, Kevin Eastman is nominated, but not Peter Laird. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the co-creators of Teenage yeah. Mutant Ninja Turtles. Meanwhile, but, yeah. um, the best web comic section oh. is now dominated by the two rival Korean webtoon giants. So we have two, we've got three from Webtoon, we've got one from Tapas, and I mean, it's, there's like nothing that's, that's just a independent mm. yeah. webcomic at all. And then there's best digital comic, which I'm going to be really honest at this point. I can't tell the difference between those two categories. I'm not I, sure. I, yeah. Well, I do know. I do oh. know what the difference is, is that, you know, the web comic is an ongoing serialized ah, comic. And these are non-serialized. And best digital comic is considered a comic that is first released digitally. Because, you know, a lot of times mm. uh, periodical comic format, you know, 20 to 30 page stories are put out as a digital issue first. So, and you know, I I, I get it, you know, okay. I get it. Um, you know, so uh, some, some good ones on there, uh, actually. I mean, they're good. I'm just yeah. saying that it's interesting that uh, Webtoon swept the best webcomic. Well, uh, you know, like I said, Nightwing swept the others, so pretty mainstream choices this year. All right. All right, we, we better move I on. I think we need to move because, on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we got a lot to we cover. We have a lot to cover. Right. And, this is double um, stuff, And people. very, very sad. Since last we saw you, we have lost some of the Giants. Yeah, really. It's just been an amazing and um, heartbreaking month. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, we, we lost Neil Adams. Yes. And, yeah. uh, 
he had my, you know, the Titanic artist, enormous personality, and, you know, creator's rights, yeah. mm-hmm. firebrand, who really just changed the industry. He yeah. changed the industry with his art and with his activism, and then he became kind of like this lovable, cur- I wouldn't say curmudgeon, lovable character that you can mm. just talk mm-hmm. to. You know, he has been a guest on the podcast. I interviewed mm. him one time, and uh, I remember he wasn't really paying attention to my questions, and his wife said, because he was talking to fans, and his wife said, you know what, you need to talk to Heidi. And then uh, he did. He, he, you know, she took over running the booth, and we had a wonderful conversation, mm. just an amazing, amazing um, person. And yeah, he lost us a little bit unexpectedly, but um, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, George Perez, um, yeah. uh, who was a diagnosed I think cancer last late last year. So obviously very sad. I mean, I'm, I, I'm my own connection is always with Wonder Woman, of course. Yeah, well, I mean um, that's what he's best. You know, known that's for. what he's best known. You know, but oh, obviously it's Teen Titans, but we can argue. Yes, that, exactly. Know? No, that he's all. You know, argue. he. You know, he's got an amazing career, um, incredibly impactful. But uh, yes, Wonder Woman is what when I think of George Perez, that's what I tend to think of for sure. Uh, and also, a a beloved just figure. Just said beloved. Beloved, beloved figure. Yes. All right. Um, uh, Justin Green, uh, who just sort of, in some ways, I don't know, he seems to be the godfather of alternative uh, autobiographical comics. Yeah. I mean, uh, with Binky Brown, I can already remember the title, Binky Brown and the Holy, Holy Virgin. I'll look Mary, it up, yeah, Gal, yeah, because let's say the title, because that is a transformative book. Binky Brown meets the Holy Virgin Mary. Yes, yes. it's the most it, mind-blowing personal narrative uh, that blows up the culture at the same time. Yeah, it was published in 1972. And, uh, really uh, influenced a lot of the undergrounders to do more personal yes, work. Yes, and if you haven't read it, go out and find it. Yeah, And, <laughs> and listen, it does uh, kick off uh, a form of autobiographical comics that is quite uh, you know, doesn't hold back. Yes. Um, you know, there doesn't seem to be that much embarrassment. I mean, incredibly revealing, incredibly embarrassing, yes. incredibly um, self-lacerating. But yeah, uh, Justin Green, uh, gets survived by uh, Carol Tyler. I mean, yes. they were married mm-hmm. for a long time. I don't mm-hmm. know what their relationship was yeah. towards the end, but um, yeah. you know, she uh, she's talked a lot about losing him. And then Calvin and I are just devastated. This, this is completely just, devastating. Um, our friend. Ivy Ratafia, mm. wife of Scott McCloud, uh, perished in a car accident, a senseless car accident, and um, you know, I just, I've, I've just been devastated since I learned of this. Uh, I couldn't believe it. It's, yeah, I, just, you know, words fail. Um, you know, I, I, she was a, a friend. Um, hadn't seen her in a while, or Scott in a while. Um, you know, obviously we're living through a period where we don't see anybody too much anymore, but, um, uh, I can't imagine a more devastating, anything more devastating than hearing what happened yeah. to her. And, uh, but she was just a one of a kind character yes. and, uh, you know, our, just all of our love and condolences to the McLeod family and to Ivy's family. Yeah. And, um, you know, listen, uh, life is short. Eat Boy. dessert first. Boy. Yeah. I, so, on a lighter note, well, moving on to back in the scrum 
of the comics industry. Uh, boy, oh boy. Okay, I don't. Phew, where to begin? Where to? Oh, yes. <laughs> where to begin? Well, let's begin here with a past guest, a guest who was just on the podcast back when maybe six months ago, eight months. Oh ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jamie Absolutely. as Rich. Yeah. And we were so excited to talk to Jamie about his new job at Tapas as editor in chief there, mm-hmm. and I. Just did like a little talk at Tapas and, you know, but over Zoom and Jamie was there. He seemed perfectly happy. And, uh, yeah. well, he's not at Tapas anymore. He left to go to IDW and become their editorial Executive director. Executive editorial yeah. director. Well, we just talked to Mark Doyle, like just yes. the last episode yes, where all- you could talk to Mark, who is, uh, I believe, I'm not quite sure how I should look. I should know because I wrote the story, but, um, whose boss is who, I think. Jamie's the boss. I'm, huh. I'm not even sure. Yeah, that's yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh but anyway, yeah, that shocked that shocked the industry. I, I, everybody as soon as this news came out is why because it looked like Tapas was I mean, Tapas looked like the place to be. Yeah. Or uh, you know, um but maybe not. Certainly maybe not for Jamie. So Calvin, do you have any idea why? I have, no. I have no idea uh, uh uh there seems to be a revolving door at IDW uh, in any event. And um, I yeah I can't add anything more to it. I, I don't quite <laughs> get it uh, unless well, there's some conflict going on at Tapas Media that we clearly don't know well, about. I, the mm-hmm. only reason thing that I heard was that um, uh, Jamie and uh, Mark Doyle had worked together before, so maybe maybe, maybe they won. Yeah, maybe and Nachi. I think maybe I don't believe he worked mm-hmm. with Nachi, the publisher. So maybe it's just. I don't know. Hey, yeah. listen, if you're listening, come on, uh, reach out to mm-hmm. tell us. Uh, uh, meanwhile, there was also um, an image, a bit of a shocker, when Jeff Boyson, their director of sales, left. <laughs> so, uh, up and he's basically spend more time with his NFTs. <laughs> okay, there you go. Well, yeah, and I, there's a whole backstory on that, obviously. You're welcome. You're welcome to fill it in. Well, I don't know how much time we have, but uh, basically there was a variant cover for a 420 pot themed book uh, that came out from Image, and the variant was a Bored Ape Yacht Club image, which uh, immediately created a firestorm on Twitter. <laughs> I have never seen so many people dunking on something like from all walks. You know, usually I I know it's going to be, yeah. you know, you know at, who's going to dump on what. I know who's going to dump on what. This was just everyone. Everyone. Mm. It was just, you know, and guess what? It's sold out because this Bored Ape Yacht Club, by the way, uh, you know, Adidas has done a Bored Ape Yacht Club collaboration. Um, So I hope you, you know, burned your Adidas shoes, okay? Because uh they're in bed with them too. Um But then... <laughs> A uh, little. Someone did a little detective work and revealed that this particular NFT was owned by Jeff Boyson, and he didn't really deny it. I mean, there was the trail of evidence was was not hidden. It wasn't that hard to find, and a lot of people thought it was um, inappropriate for the director of sales, for an executive at Image Comics, to um, you know the value of this NFT could go up. Although to me, it's like, hey, you know, if I know, have whatever. I mean, if I give you some art to run as a variant cover, the art's going to become more valuable. So I just, you know, but you yeah. know, I, I understand the impropriety of it as well. And yeah, so anyway, he left. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we'll see where he lands. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't know. This to me, this sounds more like a apology situation than a leave your job situation. But it, this is me. Well, I will say Jeff was a very key figure at Image. He was uh, mm. formerly at DC. He was formerly at Random House. He had a yeah. really, really knowledgeable publishing executive. Um, he did a lot to get Image uh, selling a lot of books in bookstores. So I, I mean, it's not it's not a you know. It's not an easy – he was a key figure there. I yeah, mean, I know. Very, so that's very, why I'm astonished yeah. that someone that highly placed would, instead of doing a fulsome public apology tour, would, would lose his job. Well, it also turned out that Jeff is really into NFTs. So um, this is not the only one that he's in, you know, which mm-hmm. is fine. I'm not saying fine. to be into NFTs is morally no. repugnant or, you know, you should be, you know, I'm shunned, you should be stoned or shunned or anything. I'm just saying maybe there was a conflict. Maybe there's more conflict or maybe Jeff just yeah. wanted to spend, was ready for a change. Could be. <sighs> so yeah. another one, Calvin. Um, Rich Johnson. Um, right, long time, the uh, friend of the show. Um, joining a diamond book distributor. Did we already cover this or no? I don't think so. No, no I don't think we, we did. Didn't. Um, it, this is how long we've been off the air, I suppose. Wow. Anyway, um, uh, Rich Johnson, who has, uh, worked across the industry in many capacities, um, uh, is a key figure actually in the, the whole, uh, arc of the growth of the graphic novel, uh, in the book trade. Uh, what he, you know, uh, I, I first met him when he was, uh, uh, running the book, uh, the book trade part of DC way, way back. Uh, he has worked for Lion Forge. Um, uh, he's one of the co-founders of Yen Press. Uh, he worked there and, uh, now he is, what is he has, he is newly named the VP of sales and business development at Diamond Book Distributors, the book trade division of Diamond Comics. Yeah. So, uh, well, you know, that is a star at a natural place to go. So, you know, it was inevitable. <laughs> I'm surprised Richard never worked at Diamond before. Yeah. But now he is. So, um, yeah, congrats, Rich. Yeah. Yep. Congrats, Diamond. Good hire. All right. Uh, so I think is that it for the, uh, yes, but I'm, there are a lot more, but we just don't even have time. Uh, just everybody's switching because Business is moving. Isn't that right, Calvin? Business is really booming, and uh, we're doing the best we can to charge around and cover it. Um, and the best indication that business is booming is that manga is booming. Mm. And in, in some ways, every other story that I have to talk about is basically about manga uh, as well. But uh, Deb Aoki does our manga feature every year, and um, frankly, this has been the feature for about the last two or three years. But if it's possible... 2021 uh, has essentially blown all of those other years uh, out of the water. Um, uh, if you find the story, and you can go to publishersweekly.com slash comics, uh, you'll see manga's booming. In fact, I need to check, uh, get it in front of me myself. Uh, as she kicks off the article, words uh, to describe uh, the, the past two years in the manga business are explosive, uh, unprecedented growth, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Masaki Shimizu, who's, who's general manager and publisher at the Square Enix uh, books in, in their U.S. office, uh, the market now is is two and a half times larger 
than the previous peak of Mongrel sales. And that's it. That was in the 2007, 2008 year. Borders. Pre, yeah, that's when Borders was here and pre-recession. Uh, when manga was basically two-thirds of all books, all graphic novels sold in the North American mar- market. So uh, the numbers now are just off the chart. Um, uh, it's not, it's frontless. It's backless. Apparently, volume ones of some of the classics, like, uh, well, not even classic, Demon Slayer. They're selling in numbers just unheard of. I think, what is it? Um, it says here, uh, first volumes of series like Attack on Titan, My Hero Academia, Demons, uh, Demon Slayer, sold more than 160,000 copies each in 2021. Wow. A year-over-year increase of over 25%. So uh, it just goes on and on. Um, you know, now, this is tempered by another uh, phenomenon now, supply chain delays mm-hmm. of all kinds. Uh, not only simply just getting uh, paper, but getting printing space. Uh, um, uh, reprints are held up. Uh, publishers are trying to, um, are trying to bring new, uh, printing vendors into it. I, I think, uh, later on we talk with, uh, Layla Acker, who, um, uh, who, uh, uh, worked for Viz for many years. Now, of course, she's working for, P- for, uh, Penguin Random House Publisher Services. Uh, they're reaching out there to find, you know, new places to get cover stock, paper, uh, ben Applegate, who's also at uh, Penguin Random House, which oversees the Kadansha lines. Um, uh, 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 PRH also oversees Square Enix. Uh, he's reaching out there using vendors, you know, printers in Europe, yeah. uh, Asia, North America, anywhere they can find it. So uh, they don't see any end in sight. <laughs> um, but nobody seems to be worried about it because sales just keep going up. Anyway, um, you know, if you're a publisher, the problem you want to have is, damn, I can't keep these books in stock. So many people want to buy books. So, yeah, uh, I think what they're, uh, and once again, the biggest, you know, where, where they, where they're really seeing growth, uh, besides, well, they're seeing growth everywhere, first of all. Uh, but, uh, they're obviously, uh, Deb went into, um, how the, these print shortages are really driving people, obviously, to, in addition to places like Webtoon, Tapas, um, uh, and it's really just growing the, di- the digital side as well because it really, has, in some ways, that's the only way you can get it. Obviously, uh, 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 comics aimed at uh, queer fans, uh, the LGBTQ market, mm-hmm. they're growing. Boys love, girls love. Uh, yeah. Selling like hotcakes. Yeah. So... Now, I can segue from the manga is booming to um, uh, comics retailing, our annual comics retailing feature, which uh, we have a new writer doing it this year after uh, having really great work by Shannon O'Leary for many years, uh, David Harper, who uh, has the blog What Sketched. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, also off panel, I believe, is his podcast. Great guy. He took it over this year. Um, 
the biggest part of the comics retail and the big takeaway from the comics retailing story is manga is booming. <laughs> uh, let's see. Really, uh, despite the problems that many, uh, retailers, um, faced, uh, with shutdowns, and I should say, uh, I actually was talking with Milton, uh, Greek Pro CV2, who was in town, and we had a talk. Uh, he, he likes to point out that, yes, there were shutdowns on the East Coast and the West Coast, but, uh, and we talked about this on the podcast, I think, a little bit, that, uh, in the middle of the country, in the red states, a lot of comic shops did not shut down. Mm-hmm. And right. they weren't really happy with not being able to get product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that's something to talk about too. But, uh, really, these comics retailers, uh, they have, they're extremely optimistic. Uh, the ones that are, and I can tell you some of the, the retailers we talk with, uh, this year, uh, uh, what, Eaton Manhoff of Cape and Cow Comics in Oakland, uh, Jen Haynes, uh, Dragon in Guelph, Ontario, I think I said that right, Ty Ditton at Austin Books and Comics in Austin, Mitch Cutler right here in New York City of the newly reopened, uh, St. Mark's Comics, uh, in Brooklyn in Industry City, uh, and also we, uh, we talk with the buyer, Duck Chase at Powell City Books in Powell City of Books in Portland and Liz Mason at the Quimby's bookstore in Chicago. But these, they're all optimistic, um, great sales. Um, there was some discussion of the, uh, distribution change around floppies, PRH, uh, uh, entering the direct mm. market. Uh, their performance, according to some of the, uh, the retails here is improving. Uh, but they also had to cope with delays. Most of the uh, most of the retailers talk about how they could have sold even more manga <laughs> if yeah. they could have gotten it. Um, uh, so they're still bullish on distribution. Uh, they speak highly of having competition in the distribution, even though it it can be obviously kind of a pain having to deal with multiple distributors. But I think most of the the, the retailers in this article talk about competition making everyone better you know i gotta just jump in here a little yeah. bit because obviously you know we went through our pandemic uh podcast of zooming in and um if you'll recall when diamond shut down back in uh april of 2020 uh that was going to kill the comics industry it didn't the comics industry seemed better than ever uh you remember when uh dc announced that they were going to lunar and that was going to kill the comics industry that did not that industry is doing better than ever mm-hmm. uh marvel announced it was going to penguin random house that was going to kill the comics industry it did not the comics industry is doing better than ever well i'm just even kind before, of there's a even uh, before the trend pandemic. there's a trend yes, there's a theme here yeah <laughs> the comics industry has been quote unquote dying since 1950 something and somehow miraculously mm-hmm. it's still yeah, here well. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'll read you very quickly, um, uh, Manhoff from uh, Cape and Cows. I'm very excited for where the industry is headed. It seems like many stores are coming off banner years. In the beginning of 2022 is keeping the good vibes going. Most publishers are responsive to retailer needs. Relations are fairly civil. Distribution <laughs> certainly has some kinks to work out, but I believe we can get where we need to do. Overall, things are going well for team comics it's a hard gig for everyone involved but it's better than working a square job yeah and uh, you know this is just i mean we've been saying this on this podcast for the last two years comics are thriving and surviving and, yes um, they're not going anywhere they're surviving and thriving i should say uh, and 
uh, pretty incredible. And, uh, well, but, well, you know, there are some storm clouds. We'll get to that in a minute. But, Kate, you have, I mean, just talking about manga back at the source in manga Japan. And I mean, anime. all sorts yep, of stuff is going on stuff. there, too. So, <clears throat> one of the things that has boomed over the pandemic is people sitting at home streaming anime. Mm-hmm. Now, not just booming here, but even relatively speaking, booming in Japan. Um, Netflix has announced numbers wise that 90% of their customers in Japan have been streaming anime and half of their customers worldwide have been streaming anime. So they've started to notice there's a demand despite the fact that they are aimed at general audiences and not specifically at the geek market as it were. Um, and meanwhile, well, well, Netflix is seeing this demand. The anime-specific, anime-only streaming services in the United States have merged. So Crunchyroll has um, successfully enveloped and digested Funimation. I mean, there's still a Funimation name out there, but basically it's just attached to um, dubs of the same stuff coming out in subs on Crunchyroll. And to give you an idea of the difference in scale of number of licenses, Crunchyroll has uh, approximately 1,500 titles available, whereas uh, Netflix has somewhere in the nature of 200 to 300 at the moment. Mm-hmm. And same with Hulu. But at the same time, um, this dominance may not last, and the reason may well be uh, mainstream streamers like Netflix. Because at the moment, it's Crunchyroll or nothing. Mm. And as you were talking about, Heidi, like uh, competition is good. Um, you know, Netflix is, is getting in hard into the anime, the anime original business right now. Um, they have announced no less than 40 titles in the next year. Wow. Um, of just Netflix specific exclusive titles. So, you know, and they're signaling that they're, they're trying to start a studio. They're trying to become a big player. So there's a lot of money there. A lot of it's coming in through streaming. Um, I think it's it's helping the studios figure out how to monetize the uh, non-DVD watching of anime to a certain degree. Because for a long time, the thing propping up the anime industry and the reason given for why we can't possibly give these anime creators uh, money is, oh, we don't make as much money as you think. Um you know, we are basically funded on the back end by a bunch of overpriced DVDs in Japan and the international market's not contributing that much. But that has changed. That business model has changed. Money is pouring in from all over the world through streaming. And that segues into our other topic, which is Ken Akamatsu, um, a major manga artist turned politician who was running for the Japanese diet, which is sort of like their Congress, has 
proposed a law to raise the minimum wage <laughs> in the anime industry. So he's the Neil Adams of anime. Here he goes. Uh-huh. <laughs> because, I mean, it cannot be understated just how little the anime industry pays most of its workers. And so, you know, it's interesting that, you know, when a mangaka decides to get into politics... He's like, hey, you know, there's a lot more money these days in this. You really should be paying these people better. So it'll be interesting to see whether that's a, a popular policy or not. Or, or whether there's a super pack made up of anime publishers who <laughs> come funding all of his his uh, rivals. We shall see more to come on that. All right. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime... Should I jump in about uh, Tokyo Pop? Well, we weren't going to, but sure. Yeah. Oh. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. Well, just, uh, just, and this is my last, uh, 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 contribution. Um, we have an interview, uh, with Stu Levy, CEO of Tokyo Pop on the 25th anniversary of Tokyo Pop, um, by Bridget Alverson. Uh, basically, uh, Stu, uh, feels questions about, um, uh, the role that Tokyo Pop uh, played in the world that we live in today, introducing manga in many ways, uh, introducing a generation of manga to, to manga in many ways through his manga re- revolution. And he also answers some questions about his uh, questionable business decisions, but really it's also um, uh, basically him talking about what went on in the time, what t- Tokyo Pop's role was in introducing manga. Oh, I got to read this because uh, uh, I... Uh... <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm sure we can... Uh, we uh, Fans and readers can chime in on whether uh, what they think of it. Yeah, yeah. and listeners, but, yeah. um, I was in middle school uh, when Tokyo Pop first came out. And when it first came out, it was not. A publisher of books. It was a published, it was a magazine. Mm-hmm. Tokyo Pop yeah. was a magazine. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, it definitely had a rise and fall saga suitable for a streaming, uh, streaming exclusive television show. But, um, it, it definitely, there was a time, even within the memory of a millennial, when it mm. was not that easy to get a wide variety of manga. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I, I'm looking at the interview now, and you know, he does address the fact that they, uh, you, you know, I think uh, Tokyo Pop was immensely influential in all the things you just mentioned, Calvin, mm-hmm. and I think it was also very influential in warning young creators not to sign bad contracts yeah. because it was a cause celeb that so many people yeah. had signed these really bad contracts, and to this day, don't have the rights to the work back. Yeah. It is completely owned by Tokyo Pop, and uh, we'll ne- never see print again. So yeah. that kind of sucks. Um, I mean, you'd think that Tokyo Pop would want the money from at least selling the rights back to these people. Well, uh, I think a lot of the people can't afford to buy. The yeah, yeah. And, you know, you know. Well, I'm, I'm not going to get into it because it's a it's a, a sinkhole of yeah. uh, counter charges. Um, uh, but. Um, it, 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 look, Tokyo Pop did what it did. They, they did. And, and, I mean, you can't what, take that one away. One of the things that they you, did, they I thought, was make girls and young women uh, a focal point of comics, and uh, that that was no small effort. So yeah, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, but anyway, well, speaking of coming back, so uh, so I have a couple little news items about businesses booming. 
Um, so Frank Miller is back. So this all happened. The all so much has happened just in one month. This is one month's worth of comics news, and you should see the things we didn't we scratched off the list. Oh, oh, listeners, you (laughs) you should see. Maybe we should post a picture. Yeah, three pages. Let's post a picture of of just how many squiggles, crosses out, and arrows there are trying to uh, figure out how to most concisely get across to you the most important stories of this past and we, month. We haven't done it yet, so I'm going to press on. We're getting on. there. We're getting press there. Press on. Press on. Anyway, Frank Miller is back with Frank Miller Presents. It is his own imprint. He is the president and the uh, editor-in-chief, and he's bought on Dan DiDio, yeah. the former co-publisher of DC Comics as the publisher. Uh, then Celine Thomas, who is the CEO of Frank Miller Inc., which is Frank's um, kind of overall publishing, you know, um, corporation uh, will be the COO um, and yeah they are publishing so they're just a couple of stories just came out today with a little bit more details of what they're doing and I, I will say I talked to Frank uh, ran an article on the beat um, about uh, Pandora which is a book that is drawn by Emma Kubert of the famous drawn right. Kuberts uh, written by uh, Chris Silvestri and Anthony Marinville, so might have by a concept about Frank Miller, but you know, I have a little talk with Frank and Emma up on, um, the beat, and, uh, you know, I have known Frank for 40 years, and, um, I, I, you know, flaws and all, I'm very fond of the guy. It's very happy for me to hear him, very enthusiastic and happy about doing work, um, and to get to catch up with him. Um, so Pandora's coming out. Three prestige uh, size issues, and by the way, Prestige Comics, the first ever Prestige comic was Ronin, which was a book by Frank Miller. So it, you know he kind of invented the Prestige format. Him, whoever was the uh, marketing t- people at DC at the time. Yeah. Um, other books that are coming back from Frank Miller Inc. Ronin, book two mm. sequel, uh, written and layouts by Frank. Uh, fan- pencils by Philip Tan. Great artist. Uh, inks by Daniel Enrique. There'll be six issues coming out in November. Uh, Ancient Enemies, written by Dan DiDio, with art by Danilo Beirut. Uh, so Dan is also getting his uh, stories in there. Uh, we look forward to that. Uh, Sin City, One Shot, written by mm-hmm. Frank Miller, with art by Milo Manara. Boy, nobody's going to uh, take issue with that at all. And finally, Frank Miller's 1858, uh, which Frank is writing and drawing, uh, which is a Sin City story set in western so it, you know it's a great comeback story yeah you know you often see publishing you often see comics creators waning toward the latter part of their career even though it would seem they have many creative years left in them um and i think we all thought that frank was going in that direction but he really bounced back and it's great to see and you know yeah. say what you will about milo manara but i feel like a Sin City comic <laughs> is exactly where he's aimed at the target audience. Yeah, you know? it is. And uh, listen, Frank Miller, for better or worse, has written some of the most important yeah. works in mm-hmm. comics. Recent, again, recent comics history. Um, I'm glad he's back. He's enthusiastic. Uh, and we shall see Frank Miller and Dan DiDio together again for the first time yeah. with their own publishing imprint. And, mm-hmm. and uh, both of them are... 
very excited to work with, you know, newer talents like Emma Kubert and like some of the names that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's going to be a lot of different people. Uh, I'm curious, are these going to, are these going to be periodical comics or? Uh, prestige format. A prestige format. Okay. Right. But- they but, will I be mean, serials, though. Well, even in the prestige. Well, there be three issues, yeah. prestige format, yeah. sort of. You know, kind of. I would say it's like Ronin and Dark Knight yeah, when right. they came out. You know, right. they were mm-hmm. each and um, you know in that format, so they kind of are periodicals. But yeah, you know, right. they're like, like a, a, a limited series. Yes. I, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, look, it's great to have uh, Frank back, and I mean, in some ways, he's been back. I mm-hmm. mean, yeah. uh, I was. Yeah. I we we interviewed him a couple of years ago at, when he did the thing with John Romita Jr. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Uh, which actually I thought was was quite good. Dark Knight Four, the, uh, not, Superman uh, Year One. Yes, I thought it was quite good actually. He, yeah, but he he hasn't he hasn't been a top form no, no, for no, a while. No, no. But now no, he seems he to be that. getting back. Yeah, he wrote that anyway, you know. Yeah. But um uh but it was great to interview him, talk to him, and I've interviewed him a couple of times over the years, and I haven't talked to him in a while. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I'm curious to see. That. I mean, I think as we live in this newly formed book centric comics world to some degree, uh, Frank Miller gave a speech. At the, um, at, I guess it was, was it the Eisner Awards? I think it was the Harvey Awards. The one where- No, this was in San Diego. And you were the, we were both there. And, uh, he gave a speech where he was saying that the, the last and most important award at the Eisner should be like a best book of the year award. Mm, yeah. Uh, and in many ways it's kind of evolved to something well, like that. Well, that's good. We'll have it this year and, uh, yeah. Ethan Hawke can win it. So that's cool. Yeah. He's a yeah. nice guy. Yeah. But, uh, but, uh, you know, he has been a visionary in a lot of ways in this business. He has. And I'm just trying to point out he, one more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, he is, it's, uh, like I said, if you, you know, I'm sure you, Calvin, you'll be talking to him as this unrolls. It's nice to hear him very happy and excited yes. about working yeah. again. Um, okay, so that's kind of the happy thing I have now. Uh, so On the Beat is another story written by Aaron Patah, who is a web cartoonist, and it is called Kickstarter Won't Explain Their Blockchain Protocol, so I will. And um, this is really from someone who knows crowdfunding, who understands the webcomics world, and also has a computer background and understands what NFTs and the blockchain are. It's a pretty... Yeah. Uh, well-rounded, devastating critique of this, you know, still baffling idea of Kickstarter going on the blockchain. And to be honest, they haven't talked about it very much. There's been a lot going on there. And, you know, NFTs are sort of tanking. Uh, we're seeing, um, oh boy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's up and down. The whole economy is tanking depending on what our, you know, what part of the day it is. Uh, you know, everything this whole month, like when the last time we talked, things were weird, but now they're even weirder, and uh, I can't even summarize this article. Um, yeah, I can't either. Yeah. but you should read it. Yeah, you should read it because <laughs> I, Aaron really understands yes, every question right. that you yeah. vaguely had. If yeah. you know, if you if you understand the blockchain, or if you like think you do, but you had a vague skepticism about it. I mean, uh, she answers or provides yeah. some of the answers that you might be looking yeah. for. Summarizing misses the point. The point is, like, she goes into all the details you're going to want. And this is especially relevant now that uh, cryptocurrencies are tanking. Um, You know, the... There are things that the blockchain is good for and things that they aren't. And so it's always good to take a look 
instead of just jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, and uh, she really uh, just just tears it apart she here. She breaks it down. She breaks it down. <laughs> yes. And, you know, what she really does is she takes all their public statements, including, you know, to be fair, I have no beef with the Kickstarter folks. They gave an interview to The Beat. We were the only outlet that they have done any kind of interview with, and they're very gracious to do that. And she kind of breaks down what they say and shows you why it's stupid, in her opinion. I'll say in her opinion, but it's also, you know, it's just like, oh, people, it might be our opinion too. But it's, uh, but it's also like, you know, none of the, uh, she just one bold false. None of the suggested features we might add with a blockchain require a blockchain, and many of them are, in fact, things that Kickstarter site already does, um, like reaching a bigger audience, like offering trust. And you know, they say they did say this would offer more trust, like. But no one distrusts nobody trusts blockchain. blockchain. But one, nobody trusts blockchain, and two, nobody distrusts Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah. I know. So, People love Kickstarter. Look, we know <laughs> it's very likely that this was just some techno bro thing that looked trendy back in November, and now God only knows because things are getting weirder. Things are getting weirder and weirder and weirder. Um, so you know, we've been uh, positive, but just to throw kind of a negative note in here, I'll be the negative Nelly. Um, you know, we've been talking about it again for the last six months. Library challenges, uh, banned books, attempts to ban books by mm. uh, organizations that claim to be grassroots but are uh, astroturf. Astroturf. Um, you know, books have getting caught up, and uh, the book at the center of this all is gender queer. Uh, the New York Times had a had an article uh, which I thought was trying to be very even-handed between Maya Kobabe, the author of Gender Queer, and you know some of the mothers who are part of you know Moms for Liberty. Mm, Should be Moms yeah. Against Liberty, yeah, if you ask exactly. me. But um, you know, I thought it tried to be even-handed, but um, you know, people are really looking at Gender Queer. Uh, which it's, you know, a pedophile that is being accused of, you know, librarians are being accused of being pedophiles. They are being harassed. They are being, um, you know, intimidated and threatened with, uh, being arrested just for doing their job. Yeah, I'm working on the library story and, um, you know, it's hard. It's hard to, to, to read about these things. Yeah. And it's, it's not librarians alone. Unfortunately, this seems like a new take on the kind of moral panic that brought us the satanic panic mm-hmm. a generation yep, yes, ago. That's exactly mm-hmm. what it is. Um, you know, we see politicians called pedophiles. We see uh, bloggers. We see librarians. We see school board members. And not for doing anything that any sane person would think counts as pedophilia. Uh, just, you know, not sticking to the political opinions of the people doing also, the accusing. And so this unfortunately makes it harder to talk about the things that really are pedophilic. And we're also we're talking about uh, librarians, teachers, uh, retailers yes. mm-hmm. being attacked by making books available to communities that have been uh, 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 mistreated, suppressed, yes. yeah. harassed, uh, yeah. discriminated um, with uh, and worse. I mean, it's mostly yeah, queer about, and you know, uh, yeah. community, uh, people of uh, color. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's racist, transphobic, books, homophobic, yeah. queerphobic. These are books it's, to help them navigate mm-hmm. a hostile culture. This is not about pedophilia. It never has been. So, now, to, can, can, I, can I jump in here? I want to say yeah. one of the things that just happened yesterday, just to give you an idea of how crazy, how rat crap crazy these people are, 
is that they are suing a Barnes and Noble. This is in Virginia, uh, for selling genderqueer because they say it is, um, you know, pornography, which it isn't. Of it's course, not, it's it obviously there is no, you know, by any standard, this book is not pornographic. Now, to to be clear, listeners, there is some content that's not appropriate for the very youngest yeah, of yeah, readers. Yeah, there's adult content, which it, our culture deals with in every format. Exactly. So, you know, if somebody says, I would prefer this not to be in, in an elementary school, fine, whatever. But unfortunately, that's not where this that's is stopping. That's not what it's about. Exactly. Like, you can't... It's about not selling it or showing it anywhere. Right, right. And so, and, but uh, just the pedophile thing, you know, Jeff Trexler, the head of the CBLDF, did an interview with ICV2. You know, Jeff is very, very um, uh, cautious in yeah. his statements. And... As he should be. He doesn't want to cause yes. more trouble. Well... That, no, that's not why. He, because he really reads the laws very closely. Yeah, and exactly. he, what he explained. He's a lawyer. <laughs> yes, but if you could let me finish what yes, I'm trying sure. to explain and why he yes. says the reason why these pedophile charges are being, there actually is a reason for mm-hmm. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is that, um, a lot of laws regarding the distribution of material harmful to minors is used in pedophilia cases. So these laws that exist where if someone is trying to abuse a sexually abuse a young child and gives them some kind of material to, you know, put them in the mood or whatever they hope, uh, that can be prosecuted on that basis. And these laws are being used in this pedophilia context in about, you know, genderqueer in schools and libraries. So it, there is actually a reason. That's so what Jeff is trying to say is that there might be a reason that they're using this specific Oh, sure. Um, you know, yeah, I think twisting the laws. They're twisting to to to, to suppress genuinely useful content. Yes, yes, it's, yeah. it's appalling. It's, aimed at a it's absolutely that appalling. Needs it. It's appalling. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think they are taking they're they're making legal hay out of a phenomenon which has been floating around in the underbelly of the culture for the last four years. Um, Q Q. Mm-hmm. So anyway, well, um, we're at almost an hour, so yeah, we're, we're, uh, I think we're going to have to not talk about a couple of topics. And uh, but but Calvin, we should definitely just really wrap this up. Our our big supersize, super special, more to come episode uh, with PW one hundred and fifty. Yeah, yeah. We, we we should just talk a little about that. And what we'll what we'll do is we'll send you to the uh, Publishers Weekly website. But the uh, Publishers Weekly is a hundred and fifty years old. This year. Doesn't look um, a day over 125. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I, I think, uh, uh, it, P- PW launched just a few years before the Yellow Kid. <laughs> um, uh, Alcold basically launching, uh, this category that we love. Um, we, uh, in the process of doing this, basically the magazine looks back over the last 25 years. Um, I have an essay of basically about how the book format and the book trade has changed comics in North America um, uh, over the course. Now, I, it, it goes really, it looks back over really about 80 years, but, you know, it's the focus is on what happened now and, and trying to illuminate us a little bit about how comics, the, the comics market works in this country. Uh, but there's also, I think for the first time, a comics timeline put together by Heidi McDonald and myself that kind of puts together some of the most uh, important momentous events of the last 25 years in 
comics and how comics have developed and how this market that we're talking about right now has come yeah. to be. So check us all out. PW at one fifty. Um, you know, you can, you can, it is it. open. It is not yeah. behind the paywall. You know, you no, can see this, uh, really great material. It's a and, really great issue, actually. Um, there's so much of interest about the history of publishing and the last 25 years of publishing. There you go. So check us all out. Um, and leave us a comment. Yeah. Whew. Listeners, you don't even know how many things that we didn't include. I, I really do think that we should take a picture of our uh, <laughs> of our worksheets here, yes. just to give you an idea of how There's double stuff paper. this is. A lot is. of paper on the table. In front of a lot of squiggles, a lot of crossouts. Um. You yeah. know, you only need red string in order to get a conspiracy board out of this one. Well, there's just proves how much news there is in our in our world. I mean, we are, you know, you guys, we are living through tumultuous times. That's for sure. Yeah. Um these are the times that um some uh scribe working for PW175 will uh do a timeline about. It. <laughs> yeah. They they will probably have to do like a little box and then pop out. Like you know how when you have like a, a state map and then you got a city on there, there's a little box around the city and then it like pops out to yes. like an even yes. bigger map for the city. Yeah, they're going to have to do that for these 5 years off of any timeline. Yeah. We're just like uh 2019 through 2022 <laughs> is just like box exclamation mark i love it yeah well with any with any luck maybe we'll all be still be here yeah, yeah. well maybe it's, maybe it'll be i hope it's lucky maybe it'd be torture purgatory you know what we'll and the see. worst part is that the amber heard johnny depp trial will still, still be, be going, going on, on so okay, and there that. will for everything except that there will be more to come <laughs>